Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest this week, an exceptional one. It's Washington Post sports columnist Sally Jenkins the longtime exceptional writer for that publication. Her latest book is The Right Call, What Sports Teaches Us About Work and Life. And in the podcast, we discuss the precepts in her book, studying greatness, decision-making as a mechanism, uh, the idea of failure as a precondition for success. Sally talked to a lot of people in sports, sort of a, like a self-help book in many ways for you if you want to adopt things from Peyton Manning, Steve Kerr, Laird Hamilton, Muffet McGraw, Pat Summit, etc. We finish up, though, with a talk of uh, a conversation about Novak Djokovic, where we both think he stands all time in tennis. Talk about the PGA Tour, Live Golf, why that story matters. Sally explains sort of why it goes or what is her definition of sports washing. And then we finish with uh, where the sports uh, journalism industry is at the moment, particularly after some uh, horrible weeks of layoffs. So Washington Post sports columnist Sally Jenkins coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, incredibly pleased to be joined by this guest. Um, I would argue maybe the best sports columnist in the United States, but obviously that's a very subjective view. Sally Jenkins is a longtime Washington Post columnist, obviously feature writer, author of many best-selling books. Her latest is The Right Call, What Sports Teaches Us About Work and Life, and I'm pleased to be joined by Sally Jenkins. Sally, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start off with the, you know, the official Terry Gross NPR question, Sally. Why did you write this book? You know, it had been nagging at me for such a long time. Uh, I feel like we don't always do a really good job of connecting the dots for the viewer and the audience uh, about what they're really watching when they watch a big game. Um, we tell them what the play is, but we don't necessarily tell them, you know, everything that kind of went into the play. And, uh, you know, I just, I felt like I was seeing some things that I wasn't getting across to readers all the time. Uh, I've been, I've been fascinated for a long time with decision-making in, in, in the heat, you know, with uh, performance under pressure. And uh, I've been just quietly taking notes over the years. And I think I finally, it hit critical mass. So this is interesting. There's a lot to sort of get to in your book, but I think you just nailed something that like, the book really is a study about greatness, maybe, and how someone can can attempt to achieve greatness. Maybe, maybe we can achieve greatness, but we, we could, in theory, attempt to do that. And so when you were writing this book, were you thinking about just the average Joe or Jane and how they could take or extrapolate 
some of the lessons from the people you talk to into their daily lives if they're an accountant, you know, or if they're a salesperson or whatever. Yeah, because I mean, that, so the, 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 the real nagging question to me all these years has been, what is exportable from these people, right? What can you, what, is there anything, are we just supposed to be awed and dazzled or can we take something home from Peyton Manning or Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes, you know? Mahomes does all these elastic things on the field, right? I mean, he he's this incredibly tensile, inspired, in the moment seeming player. But I happen to know as a sports writer, those are micro decisions, right? There's just a, a world of study and calculation that that has gone into that. Um, I mean, it was really striking covering the the Chiefs over the last few years with Mahomes and Andy Reid. The extent to which they actually they actually practice a lot of what Mahomes seems to improvise, right? So I really wanted to get at that. I I was fascinated by the the fact that you know it looks so improvisational, but I know that it's not. You know, um, so that was part of that was part of it. Yeah. What so what can people learn from that, right? What what's underneath that performance that you and me can take home? Um, and the real, to be honest with you, Richard, the real germ of the book started years ago when I was doing a profile of Billie Jean King for Sports Illustrated magazine. And it was my first really big story for the magazine. I was a much younger writer and I'd spent a lot of time with Billie Jean King and a lot of people around her. And I sat down to write and I choked my guts out. I mean, I was just sitting there gagging at the typewriter. And I thought, you know, that's great. Here you are writing about one of the biggest, best pressure players in the world. And, um, and you're not really meeting that with your own performance. And so that got me thinking about, um, you know, what, like, how can I, you know, how can I meet that performance with my own? Like, how do people sitting at a desk learn how to perform better under pressure? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, again, I should let the audience know, I mean, Sally did this at a significantly higher level than I did. But both of us were in the situation at one point of being in a hotel room and it's one in the morning or two in the morning. You have a deadline at Sports Illustrated at 8 a.m. You have to file and you're sitting at a blank screen and you either you you either crumble, right, and be like, I'm done, my career is over, I'm a fraud, or you figure out a way to start. And they're oh the best the people Sally, like people I really admire, like Tim Layden or Scott Price or people like that, would always give the advice of just like put something down on the computer, even if it's like a garbled sentence to sort of, and I, now in thinking about your book, I wonder if there is some kind of um, performance element of just doing the performance of typing so that it is on the screen and then eventually your brain maybe calms down, right, and catches up to what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, you can you can fix uh, you can't fix a blank page, right? You cannot correct, you cannot fix, you cannot improve a blank page. Um, so you have to start. You know, you've got to throw some paint up on the wall, uh, and, and and that's usually the biggest stumbling block for people. Starting and finishing are the really hard parts. Once you get into the narrative of something, you know, there's a kind of a conveyor belt can take over, but the beginning and the ends are really really hard. Yeah, so I, I really, honestly, that Billie Jean King story for Sports Illustrated magazine, I resolved that day to, I was like, if, you know, why wouldn't you treat your own performance half as seriously as they do theirs? So what are they putting into their performances that you can borrow from to make this easier for you? You know, if you want to rise to the moment like they do, what does that mean? What goes into that? So I, I just really started paying a lot more attention, I think, to uh, to that. And and I, I feel like what I arrived at were some things that pretty much anybody can use no matter what they do. Um, one of the things I do in the book is, you know, I talked to Laird Hamilton, the greatest big wave surfer in the world, uh, you know, um, Chris Everett, Billie Jean King, um, Michael Phelps, Peyton Manning, uh, you know, there's Tommy Amaker, uh, there's all kinds of people in the book. And I wanted to look at where do they intersect? Where are their methods all the same? What do they all say the same things about? And um, so I started to categorize those and break them down and, and unpack them and say, well, what, is, what does conditioning really mean? You know, what is discipline the way these people really apply it and, and see it and envision it? When Steve Kerr talks about discipline on his team, how does he apply it, right? How does he define it? Um, so those are the types of things I really wanted to get at. You mentioned some of the people who you clearly talked to and did original reporting with, uh, you know, Steve Kerr, Peyton Manning. Um, throughout that book, there's wisdom from Pat Summit, who was a really close friend of yours who you covered um, intensely as well as wrote a book about. 
Um, did you make a list before this book started of the people you want to talk to? Because the reality is, you know, you had 10,000 people to choose from. I mean, Steve Kerr and Peyton Manning are great, but you could certainly have just gone to like track and field, right? And found the, the best shot putter in the world. And my sense is that they would, you'd be able to glean similar things from that person as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, there, there was a dream, you know, there was a dream list, like my wish list. Um, I didn't get I didn't get a lot of the people I wanted to talk to. I wanted to talk to Tom Brady. I wanted to talk to Andy Reid. You know, there were some people I just couldn't get. Um, but I did get Tony Dungy, you know, and I did get Peyton Manning. And um, and, and I really wanted to, again, cut a wide swath, right? I wanted Diana Nyad. Uh, I wanted Jill Ellis, who, you know, Jill Ellis was under probably more pressure than any coach I've ever seen uh, in trying to coach the Women's World Cup soccer team in the face of incredible pushback from her own players, from the soccer press and the soccer audience that uh, constantly second-guessed her tactics and her player choices. Um, you know, she she got slagged by Carly Lloyd. I mean, she just, Jill Ellis was under as much pressure as anybody. So she was great. I love talking to her about that. You know, I said, how do you make decisions when the entire world is second-guessing you? Um, so it was really, it was really uh, interesting to, to go, okay, how far afield can I go? and still find commonalities here, uh, you know, in, in this subject of pressure, uh, pressure performance. When you talk to the subject that you talk to, did you see any differences in terms of gender in, in, in terms of how women's athletes or women's coaches, uh, approach this versus, uh, male coaches or male athletes? The answer is no, uh, no winners, winners win. You know, uh, you know, Larry Brown used to say about Pat Summit, she coaches basketball. She doesn't coach women's basketball. Um, the fact of the matter is that performance under pressure operates uh, from a series of, of, of real principles, and they all share those principles. Um, the fact of the matter is that leadership, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you're not talking candidly to your people, uh, if they find you duplicitous, they will take you down. And it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. Followers, actually, one of the startling things I learned in the book is that followers have much more power than the leaders. We think about it in exactly the wrong way. I mean, and Urban Meyer was the ultimate example of that. Uh, you can be the most charismatic, dynamic, you know, shouting man in the world. But if your followers don't believe you or they don't trust your intentions, they'll take you down. Uh, and that's exactly what happened to him. Um, so, you know, a, a Muffet McGraw had as much to say about that uh, as anybody, because she had actually just been through at Notre Dame. Um, Father, uh, Father Jenkins had just been through the COVID thing and gone to the Rose Garden and broken every rule he tried to establish for the Notre Dame uh, student body during COVID. He blew at the Rose uh, Garden White House party for Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so it was interesting uh, to talk to coaches during that and about how, you know, you better be living your principles or uh, you're going to have a, a rebellion on your hands. You mentioned Laird Hamilton before, and I wrote this down. I was going to talk to you. You said something that really stood out to me. You said decision-making is a mechanism and it can be trained like anything else. So obviously we're not, if we wanted to start surfing, none of us are going to be Laird Hamilton. Also the guy's like, looks like he's, you know, out of a central casting of like a marble statue, basically should be in a museum in Rome. Somewhere. Yeah. But he, he works for that body, you know? Yeah. No, I know yeah. he does. Exactly. It's not. Yeah. I mean, some of it's God given, but it, a lot of it's, most of it's Laird given. Um, and so what was interesting though, in that he said is that, so you can, he believes that you can train your mind and body, right. To make ultimately the right decisions to get to where you want to be. Do you believe that as well? That like, I don't know if it's repetition or whatever, but that, you know, in that sense, then all of us in theory, if we set a goal or realistic goal, maybe should be the right way to say it. We can achieve yeah. it based on Laird's philosophy. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, um, you know, Laird Hamilton didn't grow up, uh, you know, saying I, you know, he, look, nobody is accustomed. One of the reasons I was intrigued by Laird is because nobody is born with the talent to surf an 80 foot wave. OK, you're just not born with that. You really aren't. Uh, that was acquired. That was an acquired uh, skill and decision making acumen uh, that Laird built over many, many years. And, uh, you know, there's a, there a lot of decision making and surfing. I mean, surfers are very I happen to know, having done a little of it and having known Laird since I was a kid through some fortunate circumstances, 
uh, it's a highly, highly, highly uh, calculated sport, as inspirational as it may look. Surfers are really, really big wave surfers, especially, are incredibly careful about what wave they take off on and where they take off on it. They make a lot of decisions in the water. So I really wanted to talk to Laird about that. One of the things he will explain to you, and he, he works with people outside of surfing on this, including CEOs and executives, you can acclimatize yourself to, to risk, okay? You can, like, if you and me get in a race car that goes 200 miles an hour, we're not going to handle it very well, are we? Because our senses will blur, right? Um, we're just not accustomed. Our bodies neurologically cannot process the onrush of stimulus that happens in a 200 mile per hour race car. But people who've really, really practiced it and, and, and spent years driving and learning to drive at those speeds, the, the, the car moves a lot slower for them, right? Okay, that's, that's conditioning, that's, acclim that, that's acclimatizing yourself. Um, one of the ways Laird's works, Laird works on that is with uh, hot and cold. Under stress, like an ice cold, an ice bath or a really hot, hot sauna, your body tends to react in a lot of the same chemical and neurological ways that you do under stress. Uh, and so uh, an ice bath uh, has lots of benefits that can help people deal with uh, senses of alarm or senses of pressure. Um, it's really, really interesting. Um, you know, that, that's a simple thing that you can start to do is to make yourself more uncomfortable, you know, uh, on a bicycle, uh, going downhill or in an ice bath. And um, you can train your body to mitigate some of those sensations, you know, through getting more accustomed to them and accustomed to dealing with them. Laird said another really interesting thing. He said, look, your body doesn't know what's stressing you. Your body doesn't know if you're being stressed because you're in the water looking at a big wave coming towards you, or if your 16-year-old daughter took the car keys two hours ago and isn't home yet, right? Your body doesn't know the difference. What did you learn about failure as a precondition for success? You know, I, I really started thinking more carefully about failure when um, I watched the, probably the best playoff game I've ever seen uh, in the NFL, which was the, the Patriots and the Kansas City Chiefs uh, conference championship game in Kansas City when D Ford lined up four inches off sides to negate a Tom Brady uh, interception. And the Patriots took advantage of that break and marched down the field to score and force overtime and reach the Super Bowl. And um, just, you know, just broke the hearts of the Kansas City Chiefs. And, um, and I remember thinking, you know, um, it'll be interesting to see how the Chiefs respond. Well, we know how they responded. They came back the next year and won the Super Bowl, right? Um, and I, I think that uh, every coach I know would tell you that failure is an essential precondition for success, that the two are inseparable. Um, you know, everybody talks about, do you learn more from winning or losing? And the fact is the two are inseparable. Um, Pat was really funny. Pat Summit was really funny one day uh, in preseason. I said, you know, how's the team looking? You know, what do you think? And she said, well, I'll tell you. She said, if we lose a game, I think we've got a really, really good chance. And she said, if we lose two games, I promise you we'll win the whole thing. No. <laughs> she wanted to lose a game or two uh, because she knew it would make her team sharper, more receptive, uh, more attentive, more hardworking. Uh, and it would expose some weaknesses that maybe she wasn't able to see in midseason. It's interesting. Um, Gino Ariema, I've been in. Uh, situations or scrums or whatever, he has said the exact same thing. He didn't say the second loss. Usually with him, it was one, but he would acknowledge he wanted his team to lose at one point of the year because it was much hard. It would be almost, it would be a much harder challenge for him to try to co convince his players of things if they hadn't yeah. lost yeah. and they hadn't experienced it. So it's interesting that two of the great hall of famers sort of thought, uh, or thought, thought very similar all there. All one coaches, thing, coaches really fear going undefeated. You know, yeah, have you I ever heard true. a coach say, I really want to go undefeated? They don't no. say that, do they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. One of the things um, that I think you about as good as anyone could really um, offer some thought on is this. I've always been fascinated by um, fan, the disconnect between how great all pro athletes are, even the ones like who are ranked 600 on the WTA or ATP tour and sort of what fans expectations of them so it's always funny to me and we've been in many many sporting events where somebody like in the crowd will like yell out to like bam out of bio you suck like if you just step back for a second and realize 
you're yelling at someone saying that guy sucks who is in the point zero 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 one of what he does. Like, he's literally the opposite of sucking. He might not be having a good performance, but I, I still think, even in 2023, Sally, that we don't have true respect for the greatness that is in front of us when it comes to professional sports and what these men and women sort of where they are in terms of their profession versus other professions. Yeah. I mean, part of the hidden agenda with this book uh, is, you know, it's a bit of a love letter uh, to the people I get to cover um, there. I, you know, what I see, I, I, I see a really, really deep intelligence uh, at work on the field to play uh, no matter what I'm covering. And the other thing I see is a commitment that surpasses anything I've ever seen in any other profession. And uh, I, I get very frustrated with, with that, with people not realizing that, you know, Steph Curry takes 2000 practice shots a day. Right. Uh, and um, you know, most of us practice to the point where we're pretty good about something. And then we run around our backhand for the rest of our life. Right. <laughs> you know, um, we're not very candid in assessing our own weaknesses. One of the reasons that coaches like to take a loss or two is uh, because it helps them diagnose and assess their own uh, weaknesses. We, we walk around, the rest of us walk around with a lot of unconscious incompetencies, right? Um, we're, not, we're not even clear on, on where we're, we're good or not so good at something. There's a fascinating stat in the book that um, most professionals um, – think that they know everything about the product they're working with or selling or, you know, or using at work. And the fact is that they're actually usually ignorant about 30%, um, you know, uh, more ignorant than they realize about, about something, about a subject or a topic or a, a product. Um, you know, so we all have these unconscious incompetencies. Athletes don't. Athletes really, really, the thing I think I respect the most about them is they, they are much better than we are at confronting their weaknesses and their unevenness under pressure and really confronting it and facing up to it and working it out, you know. And, um, and they, it doesn't mean they always win, right? Um, they, they, a lot of times, you know, they suffer real pain. I mean, another thing I really respect about them is that they, they really lay themselves on the line. Uh, they're not nonchalant, right? They um, they they work with an unembarrassed intensity, uh, and they and they they put themselves on the line in ways the rest of us a lot of times are afraid to. You know, I want I wanted to um, as we're still talking about the book, I wanted to ask you about the commerce part of of writing this book. You have written many books and certainly many pieces for the Post and other places where you are essentially writing about an athlete, a, a profile of someone. It might be – or a profile of something in the athletic realm. It may be a singular person. It may be like a great team. On this one, to me, there's elements of this book, uh, significant elements of this book, which if I put your book under like the leadership like tag at, at a Barnes & Noble or something like that, it would fit in. Did you intentionally, when pursuing this book, did you want to write something that sort of was much broader than sports and like the CEO of a company or the leader of a small business could sort of use these sporting lessons to, um, in their own, in their own avocation, in their own employment? Yeah, because I feel like, um, okay, so most, most business people, most deciders, uh, not even business people, most deciders in, in any other, any realm, whether it's an editor or a CEO, make decisions behind closed doors. We don't really get to see their process, right? Like we don't get to watch Bob Iger uh, in live action making determinations for Disney, right? Um, we don't get to watch Jeff Bezos decide what he's gonna do with Amazon. We might get a shareholder's letter once a year that has some insight into how they think. Coaches and athletes make decisions right in front of us in real time under very real pressures with very high stakes, right? I mean, it's the greatest reality TV in the world. And it's the greatest Steve Young, the 49ers quarterback, always said that he thought football was the greatest laboratory in the world of human behavior. So he wanted to take advantage of that. Um, and I wanted to say, I mean, there's things in the book where I look at what athletes have in common with grandmaster chess players. I look at what, what coaches and athletes that uh, I study in the book, whether it's Peyton Manning or Michael Phelps, have in common with the way people work at NASA. And by the way, they have an incredible amount in common with the way people work at NASA, the way they train astronauts for uh, no margin for error environments. So I wanted to make all those connections for people uh, so that they understand the level of decision-making and the level of practice that's going on 
in sports. It's important and it's useful and we underuse it and we underanalyze it, I think. Uh, we, we waste the opportunity to really take these people as seriously as we should be taking them. In, in writing about the pillars that you wrote about in this book, conditioning, practice, discipline, candor, culture, failure, intention, was there one you walked away from your writing and reporting that really stood out to you or, or that maybe you, um, now that the book is complete, like you've, you really have become a believer in this particular pillar? I'm a real believer in the way that athletes and coaches uh, use uh, failure. Uh, I'm a real believer in the way they analyze it and the way they bounce back from it. But more importantly, I'm a real believer in the way of somebody like an Andy Reid, who went from being, you know, one of the most sort of long-suffering, tortured uh, losers who couldn't win the big one in the NFL to now a two-time Super Bowl winning coach who's just a lock for the Hall of Fame. He did that very late in his career, Richard, if you think about it. Look how long Andy Reid worked, you know, uh, in the league to become this level of a coach, right? And what's so interesting to me is that uh, they have the here and live with it more comfortably than the rest of us. That doesn't mean they're not pained, right? But Pat Summit, she won eight championships. She coached for 38 years. 30 years of her life, she went home a loser, right? So if it's all about winning, you just couldn't live with that, right? The way what I really investigate in that chapter is how do you live with it when you lose, right? Um, whether it's Kyle Shanahan, who fascinates me, you know, this is a guy who's died with his boots on, you know, three or four times in the public eye, um, lost really big leads in Super Bowls, been blamed for a lot of a lot of loss and uh, keeps coming back for more with a clear conscience, right? So how does this Pat Summit live with the loss? You know, how does, I mean, Jill Ellis said to me, you've got to be able to live with the miss. And it's very, very true. And the rest of us are a lot more easily destroyed. They are so comfortable with their process. They've done a lot of work to think about what is my philosophy. Steve Kerr knows why he's doing everything he's doing so that when he loses, he can walk away going, I'm comfortable with what I did. You know, I may not get, I'm, I don't get the absolute final result that I want, but Andy Reid says this too. It doesn't mean you're going to win every game and that you're going to win every time, but it means you've given yourself a really good chance. So they're very comfortable with themselves and their processes. And I, to me, that's the ticket. Like, you know, um, you know, I want to be able to live with the way I did my work at the Super Bowl, Right. I don't know that I'm going to write a great story, but I want to be comfortable with the way I went about my work uh, for that game, right? That's what's important. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives were consumed by all the what if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass or play call. Each week on alternate routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow alternate routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Let me ask you three final things away from the book. First one is we just saw Novak Djokovic um, win the French Open, um, surpassing uh, everyone on the men's side for the most Grand Slam singles titles ever. You have written about tennis for a long time. At Sports Illustrated, you are you were our senior writer for tennis. Um, you, you, you've written about tennis during the duration of Roger and Rafa's career, as well as Sampras. You're a little, obviously, labor was a little before your time, but you're certainly familiar with all the greats beforehand. When you see Novak, for you, someone who really has watched a lot of tennis, is he unquestionably, in your opinion, the greatest player of all time, or do you have a different kind of standard for who you would give that designation to? You know, I, I do think he's, yeah, he's, he's the greatest of all time. Uh, he's also had the greatest advantages of all time in equipment and training, 
you know, look, he had Tom Brady in his box at the French Open, right? I mean, um, these are guys who, uh, okay, so so Novak um, Djokovic is uh, 36 years old when he won his 23rd Grand Slam. I mean, Connors, Jimmy Connors was considered the grand old man of tennis. He won his last Grand Slam when he was 33. So these guys are pushing the envelope on age, number one. They're, they've learned how to take care of their bodies uh, in, in, in a way that makes longer careers much more realistic. Um, you know, um, they, so they have the advantage of a lot of neuroscience and a lot of medical science about aging that's really, really helping them. You know, nobody understood the importance of flexibility, right? In in the McEnroe Connors or even the Edberg Becker or um, even the, the Sampras Agassi uh, generations. Now, I mean, Shashevsky tells this fascinating story about coaching the Olympic basketball team. You know, when he took over, he told, you know, the LeBrons and the Kobe Bryants, guys, let's go two a day, you know, until we get everything installed. We'll have one workout in the morning and one in the afternoon. And they all said, coach, we can't do that. We got to do our yoga and our Pilates in the afternoon, <laughs> right? I don't know a guy in the NBA now who doesn't do yoga, right? Some form of yoga or Pilates or extreme stretching. Part of what Djokovic does, it makes him so great still. He's got the most extreme range of motion I've almost ever seen in a tennis player. His flexibility is incredible. Um, he doesn't get hurt. So, um, and so this is all a long, grainier answer to that question. Um, but yeah, he's the greatest player, but he's, uh, he's also got uh, more, more advantages. He knows more. I, um, uh, having followed you on, having, following you, currently following you on Twitter, um, you are into the PGA Tour, uh, <laughs> Live Golf, uh, the Saudis. Like this has become for you like a uh, like a major topic of discussion for you, um, and understandably so. It's obviously a major major story um, that crosses over um, sports. Uh, do you see this in? How do I say? There's not many people I would ask this of, but I will ask this of you. Do you see this in larger terms beyond sports? Like like okay, so it's not just like it's not just a PGA Tour. It's not just X, but it does feel like. There's sports washing elements to this. Does it mean that this is the beginning of the Saudis really jumping on uh, the larger, you know, investment into other American sports, our traditional American sports? Uh, just give me your, I guess, your broad strokes on why this for you has become such a, a topic of interest. Three, three vested interests. Golf is the sport I really grew up with more than any other. I mean, I went to my first British Open when I was 11, okay? Oh, it's my first U.S. You know, my dad was the golf writer for Sports Illustrated magazine, and I traveled with him in the summer. And there, a summer didn't go by that I wasn't at a major championship uh, running around on the golf course. So, I mean, I, I was at Oakmont and saw Johnny Miller's 63. Uh, I was at the British Open uh, at Muirfield and saw Trevino beat Nicholas and stop the Grand Slam. I mean, I was at those events as a little girl. Um, so... Uh, so, for, so it's it's my father's sport, um, and it's it was the sport I was really uh, spoon fed on as a kid. Uh, number one, number two, I'm a Washington Post employee of 30 years standing, and Jamal Khashoggi was a colleague. Um, and number three, I'm a New Yorker uh, who was in the city on 9/11. Um, so, you know, I have, I have three reasons to be somewhat passionate on the issue. But more importantly, you know, I work in Washington D.C. Uh, I've covered a lot of Olympic games and talked to a lot of people in the State Department. And this is what people need to understand about sports washing. Um, what the Saudis are doing is from a playbook, okay? Uh, China's done it. Russia has done it. Uh, and, and this is the playbook. Sports washing matters because it's not about hypnotizing a bunch of Westerners into forgetting uh, how the Saudis treat women, right? Um, sports washing works because its goal is to so entangle Western commercial interests, that it hobbles the State Department in its operations and it hobbles American governments in how it deals with bad actors, okay? Uh, it makes it very, very difficult to deal with China when Chinese uh, investment over here is so heavy and our investment in China is so heavy, okay? So that's the goal. Saudi Arabia is out to really, really entangle itself in our economy to the point that it makes it hard to draw lines with them. Um, so that's why it matters. And, uh, you know, look, <laughs> I, you know, Federal Express, United Airlines, MasterCard, these are companies that sponsor golf. These are companies that have contracts with the PGA. Uh, and this is a question no one has answered so far. Are those contracts now transferred into this global for-profit entity that Yasser al Ramayan is the chair of? 
what happens to those endorsement? What, what happens to those sponsorships? What happens to the media rights contracts with the PGA, right? Um, you know, all of these potential entanglements, um, you know, matter. And, and it's not just, oh, uh, sports washing is going to make us go all goo-goo-eyed because we'll all forget about these offenses when we start watching really good golf. No, it matters to the State Department greatly. I talk to people over there about it all the time. They are passionate on the subject. It's, it's a matter of patriotism, to be frank. It really is. It's cut and dried patriotism, you know. Um, and, and everyone can say, oh, well, you have to do business with China. No, get out of China. The State Department is telling American companies in no uncertain terms, get out of China. You make it harder for us to deal with tai the Taiwan issue. Get out of China. Get out of Saudi Arabia. Don't be in business with Vladimir Putin. Don't do it. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The last one, and we're going hitting a different couple of different topics, just because uh, um, you know I could keep you on all day, but I won't. And the last one is we you you have, you know you you have had what has been a great career, lottery ticket career, given the places you've worked. You've been very fortunate, and I would probably argue, and I think fairly, you're also fortunate to be born when you were, because the business is very different now than if you were 25 years old heading into the business. Both of us have seen now, Sally media layoffs upon media layoffs, especially in 2023, and we've really seen it over the last couple of years hit hard in sports, including my place, The Athletic, literally uh, the, the week I am uh, taping with you, and it's just a larger drumbeat of whether it's Sports Illustrated or SB Nation, et cetera. Um, uh, the, the, the reality is like there's always going to be a craving for information. There will always be a place for storytelling, but you grew up in a very traditional element of sports writing for a newspaper or for a magazine um where where do you sit in terms of like that business over the next 10 to 15 years you know um the business that i got into you know in like 1981 1982 um you didn't get rich and send your kids to ivy league schools as a as a sports writer right my dad was a rare exception who he he happened to write a best-selling novel that made him a lot of money and became a novelist that was his his his, his heavier income his his uh his sports illustrated income was was not huge um the business the business really grew while I was in it to the point where you could get paid very, very well, like a Rick Riley, um, you know, and now that's gone away again. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, the people, the people who make money are the multimedia yeah, television performers yeah. now, like Stephen A. Smith yeah. or Pat Mack. I think there's always going to be kids like me who are willing to live out of a back backpack and eat, you know, live on coffee and, and, a, and a bag of almonds um, just because, the, um, the the thing that I loved about it when I was young and it didn't pay very well was you got a plane ticket to go somewhere and see something and write something. And that was the real benefit of getting in the business. I still think there's kids like that. Uh, I think there's young people who want that adventure uh, and are willing to do it uh, and not get rich doing it. Um, so so that I, I've always believed in that, number one. Um, number two, the other thing, what I would tell young people is, Work for people you think are good people, uh, because if you do that, I mean, I stayed at the Washington Post when times were very, very tough. Uh, the Graham family, uh, the, the Post was a publicly held company. Uh, we were cutting the, the paper was getting cut to the bone and I had options to go other places. And I told people, I love this place. I love the people I'm working for. And I'm going to ride the back rail of the Titanic right into the ocean, you know. Um, that I made that decision. I wanted to stay there. We got very lucky. Uh, the Graham family really took one for the team when they sold to Jeff Bezos. They saved the institution by selling. Uh, and, and that's why I say, if you work for good people, I think you'll be okay. 
uh, I was. I'm, I made that decision, and uh, I, it was a good one. Uh, you know, I, I think I think a good institution uh, will survive because the the people at the Washington Post. I mean, we're having a bit of a hard time again. You know, uh, the economy is has not been great for newspapers, um, but. You know, it's just it's the pride of my life working at that paper and uh, the colleagues that I have, the devotion to the paper and to craft and to reporting um, is really unabated. No matter what the economic situation of the paper, it's a remarkable thing to be in that environment. And it's the best decision I ever made, uh, whether the times are, are good times or bad economically at the paper. Uh, it, it never affects the journalism or the way people go about their work there. Yeah, I would say, one, I hope there's enough still good institutions out there. I'm a little cynical on that. Secondly, um, my $99 a year, it's probably up now, uh, that I pay you guys is honestly like uh, a privilege and a pleasure for me to pay. Uh, and I would not say that about literally everything that I subscribe to, but the 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 Washington Post on a day-in and day-out basis, I think, does miraculous work. So I appreciate what you Well, do. I mean, don't you think like good new stuff is getting born all the time, too? I mean- I do, I do, but I, but I, but the, the, you know, you said something and I agree with you. Um, you know, I didn't go into this business to make a million dollars. I went into this business and Sports Illustrated, thankfully, I got lucky and they paid me to go to seven Olympics. That was my dream. Right? It was somebody to that pay was me the money. real benefit, right? It wasn't the pay. The question yeah. is, what I wonder is, I don't know how many institutions left are left, Sally, where they'll even fly you somewhere even if they're not paying you a lot of money. That's what sort of worries me is that, is that, are you know ultimately, and you know this better than me. Like, there has to be money somewhere behind something, and my hope is that at least there is money for that kind of young person who wants to explore the world, like the money to actually functionally do it, as opposed to be paid yeah. to do it. Um, yeah. And this year, and maybe some of my cynicism is just this year has probably been as bad a year for media layoffs as I think me and you've yeah. seen in a long time. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, I think I don't know what the 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 model. I, I feel like people are going to crack the code. I mean, there's certainly the nonprofit model, I think uh I hope so. Yeah. I mean, ProPublica is just an like absolutely great like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. enterprise. It just really it's just stupendously good. Um, you know, look, you and me remember when like Yahoo was a joke and then Yahoo Sports became the dominant uh, thing and, and place to work and Dan Wetzel, you know, all of a sudden was showing up at Olympic games and, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, things get born and they grow and they mature. Politico was just a, you know, somebody's harebrained idea Two reporters from the Washington post deadspin, you know, turned out to be one of the great homes for great new young sports writing voices. So I have a lot of, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be Pollyanna about this, but I just have seen so many good young writers come up um, through unusual routes. Uh, you know, I mean, Jason Gay and Will Leach are, are now two of the, you know, uh, you know, more elder statesmen of our profession in a way. And and uh, they started as kids clawing in their Brooklyn basements, right? I mean, that's that's how it happens. So, um, you know, I, I share your concern about the dwindling number of bankrolled places, but I'm hoping that the nonprofit model grows other places. And I'm hoping that also, you know, I think things like micropayments and, you know, I think people. Sub, sub, substackization is a good thing for sports writing because yeah. it does give you a chance to gain your own audience. But the reality is um, you might have to pay the bills to, to initially build up that audience away from the writing, you know, but yes, I'm, I'm, I'm still an optimist. I, I, I believe in information and I believe in storytelling. And as long as I believe in that, I have to believe someone's going to want that. What do you think about hyperlocal? I, I believe it's as philo philosophically it could be massively successful, but the cynic in me then gets back to, I do think you generally speaking need some deep pockets to start it. It, it like I, I, uh, for a lot of these ideas, I believe the idea itself is sound but to get to that point you do need funding to start it up to pro for proof of concept and then i think ultimately the the, the i mean again, we could have a four-hour pop conversation on this but where the the original sin of all this was the places that produce quality sports writing quality sports journalism early on gave it away for free 
as opposed to charge you for it. And had we as a um, had we as an industry, I'll just go back in the day, like 1985, where the Washington Post says we've create we have this new incredible thing called the internet. We're going to put sports, great sports writing on it, but you, Mister or Miss Consumer, have to pay twenty dollars a month for this incredible thing. It would have changed everything. The way like Netflix. Hey, we got this incredible product, but you guys are paying for it. We're not giving this to you for free. And that's where we've been chasing we've been chasing that for a long, long time. So I, I do believe hyperlocal can work because like the person next door to me wants to know like about their uh, high school team, right? They want to know like why is the city charging me more in taxes? Like that's uh, you know, everybody wants that. I mean, I live, I live in an area with like three or four really good little village papers and I, and they're, they're good and I love them and I look at them and I'm an avid reader of all of them. I mean, I, I'm a real believer in them. And I spent a month in Northern California last fall and subscribed to the uh, Carmel Pinecone, which I, mean, I love that, <laughs> which I became a really big fan <laughs> of. So, um, so who's the columnist? Clint yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so I, I believe, I believe those papers will always um, be around and there seems to be a real appetite for them. And, um, and I also, I really am interested in the idea of giving subscribers, um, you know, I think we've been asking people to buy big fat packages, kind of like cable TV, right? You know, we've been, we've been, we've been selling almost the equivalent of like big cable packages. And I think, you know, I'd like to see, you know, if you're a World Cup, you know, if you're just an ardent World Cup soccer fan, you you should be able to access Steve Goff's coverage in the Washington Post. Right. Pay, pay per pay story, story right? something, you know, something to yeah. get, yeah. you know, people who are Golden State Warriors fans. I mean, we, we've got great NBA coverage in our paper. We're one of the few really last great national sports pages. Right. And so I, I feel like we have such ardent. Uh, the sports audience is a rich uh, uh you know, fevered, um, loyal audience, uh, if we can get at them and offer them ways to access the Washington Post uh, in, in ways that are um, not quite so, uh, like I say, without asking them to buy the entire big package. So, I, you know, now I, that may be a completely destructive idea as far as the rest of the paper is concerned. I, I'm not smart enough to know all the implications of that. But, you know, I, I really think for sports pages, uh, sports sections or sports entities, you know, Bleacher Report's really good, right? Like, I, I actually really, I like them a lot. But, but, but generally speaking, free. Yeah. So. Um, the video's not free. Uh, <laughs> Correct. Yeah, right. Um, right. But, you know, but I do, I do think that we happen to be lucky in that we work in a field that has um, a certain intensity of interest. Yeah, I was going to interrupt you. People care about what we do, and that's not to disrespect somebody who's like uh, – an accountant or uh, for some just, you know, accountant places doing stuff every day. But we the, we have the privilege that people happen to care about what we write about, which is a which is a real privilege. And they care, but they care differently than they might care about politics. So, like, for instance, I feel like at The Washington Post, the audience for politics is at a very high level and it stays at a high level. And, um, you know, if we're writing about political debt ceiling or Trump indictment or something, there's going to be a, a certain size audience. The sports, the ocean can be pretty flat in sports at times, right? Seasonally. Um, you know, let's face it, the Stanley Cup audience is not immense. Um, you know, uh, you can see that in the TV ratings. So there's flatter periods in sports. And then there are these huge cresting waves like the World Cup, right? Or, or like, you know, a really uh, fascinating, um, um, you know, let's say uh, a fascinating NBA championship series like, you know, the, the Lakers and the Warriors, right? Um, and so the trick is how do you, it doesn't, you have to be able to catch that wave and convert that wave into, into some form of subscription, you know? Um, uh, but I don't know that it has to be a 365-day subscription, so... Yeah, it's interesting. We disagree on that because I, I think the bundle is the only way for us to get paid at the places we work at. That said, I am with you a thousand percent that there has someone has to come up with a way where the where the consumer who wants a micro product is able to pay for that micro product. Let's just say Stephen Goff in this case is the product, right? right? And there's got to be a way for you to be able to pay for that if you are not part of that ecosystem to start. Like I agree with you. I don't. I don't know the answer. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. But I agree 
that you have to figure out a way, even if it's in a small, you know, like not everybody wants a five course dinner, right? Some people just want like a bagel and, and a coffee. Well, like you got to be able to provide both. I, I mean, we're still forcing people to buy the entire album, right? Instead of songs. In some ways. Yes. Right. In some ways you're right. I mean, it, it's kind of like that. It's not a hundred percent, but it's similar. So, so that's my question. You know, I have these questions like everybody else does and m people much smarter than me are thinking about them. But um, you know, I, I, I do, you know, the, the content, the, the, I think there's always going to be young writers willing to be good merchandise cheap, you know, as my dad used to say. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I think that, um, the one thing we have to understand that I don't think we've articulated this, this so clearly is that, you know, the old journalism model is, um, we actually sold to advertisers, right? We sold, we sold ourselves to advertisers and then, and advertisers then, you know, spoke to the audience and that's changed. Like actually, um, the, 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 the subscriber and the reader now is, is the paying is the payer here. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I just, the implications of that are going to take some thinking through because one of the things uh, uh, that we've just been talking about is the fact that not every section of a newspaper or a magazine holds the same interest and is read in the same way. Okay. I mean, people are reading politics in the Washington Post differently than they're reading the sports section and the Metro section just are. And so, yeah, right now we're still bundling all that together. My question is, you know, what, what are we going to do about those differences? Sally, we've solved nothing here, but it's been a great conversation. All right. Sally Jenkins is a longtime Washington Post columnist. You can check her work at that amazing paper. Her latest book is The Right Call, What Sports Teaches Us About Work and Life. You can obviously get that anywhere you get books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. Sally, wish you the best of luck with the book. You got a really, really interesting topic, and um, in my sense, it's going to do well. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you, Richard. Always great to talk with you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Sally Jenkins for her time and insight. If you like these conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. Last couple of podcasts, we had Taylor Twelman and Sports Media Watch founder John Lewis. Taylor discussed how Apple can maximize Leo Messi's time in America. John and I discussed NBA Finals and Stanley Cup viewership. Kate Abdo was the guest prior to that, the CBS Champions League host at Kevin Van Valkenburg, the editorial director of No Laying Up, and Chad Mum, the executive producer of Full Swing, to talk about PGA Tour, Live Golf, had Beth Mowens and Michelle Smith to talk about softball, Caitlin Thompson was on here to talk about tennis coverage, Jeff Van Gundy, and uh, the list goes on. Hopefully you'll find some stuff you like. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today.